Welcome to Unapologetically Asian, the place where we talk about navigating through adulthood as Asian Australians. Today you're joined by Tiana and Phoebe. Hey guys, I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Phoebe Lau um, and the conversation that we had today. I just wanted to quickly say an apologies from my end that the audio isn't 100% perfect. Um, to just to give you a bit of context, I have been working with a new setup and this caused echo in the original raw files. An audio editor did try to clean this up to the best of their ability. But all in all, I think that the conversation was a really great one with Dr. Phoebe. She just brings so much insights. So I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. Hello, everyone. I hope you are enjoying your commute to work or if you're having a day off, hope you're enjoying listening to this podcast. Today, we're in for a treat because we're joined by clinical psychologist and director of Inner Collective, Dr. Phoebe Lau. Thank you. I'm um, excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Phoebe and I actually met um, at the end of uh, 2022, we had mm-hmm. a we had a virtual conversation, and instantly I was very drawn to your warmth and your energy and your passion for this field. So I'm so excited to have our conversation today. At the beginning of every guest episode, we love to kind of deep dive into um, your roots and where you came from. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing, and um, what was young Phoebe like. So my parents immigrated to Australia, specifically Sydney, when I was about four. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Sydney. Um, and basically we started off in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, which is a predominantly Caucasian mm. and probably Jewish community in the eastern suburbs. I was maybe one of two Asian children in my primary school mm-hmm. and grew up in the 90s in Australia and I've heard, you know, other people in your podcast like Benjamin Law and Natalie Tran mentioned that, that this was like the Pauline Hansen yes, yeah, era, yeah. which was not fun for, mm-hmm. I guess, a lot of Asian communities. So that was a really, I guess, interesting time in the Australian zeitgeist almost that Pauline Hanson was such a large figure Mm -hmm. and I think it's also interesting that there's a a few of us millennials who mention Pauline Hanson Mm. because even though I really want to forget about her (laughs) she's always there (laughs) she's she's always there she's you know even if um people don't want to be affected by you know uh, her presence in the 90s it's interesting that we have to mention that that was part of mm-hmm. our childhood. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Speaking to Benjamin Law and Ali Chan, we've kind of covered that. It was an uneasy time because it was when someone who was in a political position, someone who is so um, platformed and someone that has a very strong voice and influence on people is basically saying that Asians are swamping Australia and really giving I guess, giving us, like, a bad name. What was that like in school? Like, you said you you mentioned you were, like, one of two Asians. Did you feel the brunt of that with the kids in school? I'm curious if, you know, that that showed up, I guess, in the playgrounds as as much as it did on TV. Interestingly, from my memory, um, 
it wasn't the kids, it was more the teachers and oh, I guess wow. the parents of the children. Yeah. So we definitely faced racism. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum more than once went up to the school, uh, you know, about discrimination. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so much the children and, and children aren't born racist, racist yeah. or with discriminatory beliefs. Mm-hmm. They're, they're taught these um, beliefs. So it was more of the adults, really. Yeah. I love the fact that your mum was like, you know what, I'm not going to stand for this. Phoebe's not going to be treated like this. And she's like a boss bitching her way up there. She was, she was fierce. Yeah. yeah, she was fierce. Um, as I said, my parents are from Hong Kong. Yeah. Hong Kong at that time was part of the British colony. Yes. And, you know, luckily when um, they immigrated over here, they, they spoke English pretty proficiently. Mm-hmm. And my mum worked with a lot of Caucasian people in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So when she came over here, it was such a stark difference, I guess, um, particularly in the eastern suburbs where there were like mm-hmm. no Asian people. But she always had a really, you know, fierce way of approaching discrimination. Mm-hmm. And she was probably the first one to really open my eyes about discrimination. I mean, as a kid, you're like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're paranoid. (laughs) But over the years, I really appreciated that she pointed these things out. I'm curious how you got into your field because you're in in psychology and um, I know you're very passionate about behaviours and and mental health and this area. How did you get into it? Yeah, I came um, to psychology and mental health, my interest in mental health, really early. Mm -hmm. I was 14 and I just knew that I really liked talking to people when they were going through challenges Mm -hmm. and they were suffering. I mean, at that time... And, you know, not to trivialise 14-year-old girl difficulties because they can, there's a lot of challenges. But um, I remember there were a a lot of specific challenges um, that I like to talk to my friends about and them to me and, you know, people in my wider year community as well. At that time, um, as an adolescent, at that time we had moved to the western suburbs. Mm -hmm. So it was a very stark difference. Um, to the eastern suburbs. I can imagine, I can imagine. Yeah, and so a lot of the challenges and difficulties that we were talking about was about cultural expectations Mm -hmm. of our parents and and pressures. So I knew that I liked talking to people about it and um, I really enjoyed that feeling of that community. And then so I was like, how do I do this for a living? And I was a a little bit of a nerd. I don't know if you guys had this when you were like in senior years, but we used to have a UAC guide and it was a university admissions book mm-hmm. and it listed all the universities and all the degrees that they offered. And then under all the degrees, it was like what you study, what you have to study in year 12. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at the UAC guide. <laughs> 
you know, just a bit of casual light reading for you. <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit Asian. <laughs> but reading the UAC guide and going, oh, well, you know, psychology, that's the degree that I wanted to do. Like at that age, I didn't really know what psychology meant. Mm-hmm. But at 14, that was my introduction. To be honest with you, when you said 14-year-old, the first thing I thought of was, my biggest issues in life and what I spoke to my friends about was, oh, my God, did Mike like me? Like, oh, does he have a crush on me? Like, I'm not sure. But the fact that you were having these, it sounds like, very um, articulate conversations about cultural pressures with your friends, that that is very impressive, I have to say. And as a 14-year-old as well, like, knowing what you want to do. I was fortunate. Yeah. But don't get me wrong, we did have this conversation about boys. <laughs> I think like every 14-year-old person goes <laughs> through conversations about, you know, who they like and yeah. if, they, if um, you know, they read the signs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is so funny. So from there, did you did you have those conversations with your parents? It sounds like they were quite progressive. They are progressive in in some ways, I guess, in terms of um, you know my parents and my mom was definitely not a tiger mom, mm. um, and you know another stereotype. Uh, they didn't really understand my interest in psychology. I think they thought that it was a passing kind of oh, okay. thing. Yeah. And then when I was in year twelve and I really wanted to study psychology. My dad, um, and I guess this speaks to um, stigma of Mm. mental health in Mm. Asian communities, but my dad really didn't want me to study psychology. And he thought, you know, if you talk to crazy people, and he said this in Chinese, Mm -hmm. if you speak to crazy people, you're going to be crazy. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, how is that going to impact you? And um my mom on the other hand wanted me to have like a really stable consistent job Mm -hmm. and um that was more like you know being a teacher or nurse Mm -hmm. or going into corporate or or whatever whatever that was so psychology was totally out of field for my parents that is a very common thing I think with a lot of Asian households Mm. or children of immigrants there's a very big stigma with talking about our feelings, Mm. Um, just our feelings in general in in the household. And I know this is not for everyone because, you know, of course Asia is not a monolith and Mm. there are definitely um, people who are very open in their households to talk about these Mm. things um, with your work in a collective. And and firstly, let let us know what Inner Collective is all about. Um, But I'm just curious about if you've seen any patterns with... um, people in the community um, and what they go through. So in a collective, we're a a group of clinical psychologists and registrars and uh, we're Asian, Mm -hmm. you know, at the moment we are open to (laughs) people of colour or, you know, um, diversity. Uh, But at the moment we're a group of Asian clinical psychologists Mm -hmm. and we are really interested in, and, and passionate about opening up mental health conversations with the wider culturally diverse communities, not mm-hmm. just Asian communities, yeah. and not in necessarily in a position of experts. Like where we're trained in psychology, we go through very rigorous uh, training, and we we do believe that we have something to offer. But we also believe that other cultural communities have Mm. wisdoms to offer as well. 
Definitely. And it is about that collaboration between cultural wisdoms, your own individual inner wisdom, and then the wisdom that we bring in as mm-hmm. psychologists. So we like that collaboration yeah. of wisdom to help foster mental health. Mm-hmm. So we're um, really interested in destigmatizing mental health within the community. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that. Actually, something that um, I wanted to touch on is the name Inner Collective. In Asian countries, a lot of the time, we're a very collective society, mm. right? Like a lot of what we do, it has a ripple effect and it's always about the family unit mm. or it's all about the collective unit. And I love how you're kind of redefining that word in a sense for Inner Collective because I think a lot of the time when we've, we've spoken about it on the podcast before, there seems to be a little bit of a negative connotation with being in a collective society because it means, you know, what your behaviours or how you are, it really has an impact on your family. So you have this constant guilt in a mm. sense or you always want to save face because, you know, that's an important part of the Asian culture where, oh, my goodness, if my daughter went to a psychologist, um, what is what is the community going to think about our family? Mm. But I love that you've got that in your name because I feel like you're kind of redefining what it means to be a collective in a sense would you say that oh thank you <laughs> thank you for um actually noticing the the name collective when i started the inner collective it was that i it was really about the collaboration and collectiveness of community but also within ourselves mm. as well mm-hmm. within the different parts and roles we play within ourselves you know how we show up for our family our friends to work our, you know, partners and privately, we all have these collective parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. and it's about how to integrate and uh, integrate all of these parts of ourselves as well as uh, the community that we we live in. Mm -hmm. And you asked about the things that we do see Mm -hmm. um, in therapy and that's, you know, one of of the themes that... uh, and I, and I preface this by saying, and you've mentioned this, that we are going to generalise, mm. but there are, you know, lots of different pockets of different Asian communities and ethnicities, and we don't want to um, put a blanket, put a blanket mm-hmm. over all different communities as well as all different families. Mm-hmm. The common themes, though, that we do see is that... Um, difficulty with expressing one's emotion Mm -hmm. not having the language and the words to describe the more difficult challenges and a lot of suppression of emotion Mm -hmm. so um, I guess instead of identifying that emotion or feeling that emotion Mm -hmm. it is more of a somatic or physical experience Mm -hmm. of that emotion Mm -hmm. so People can describe that they come from really loving and warm families, mm. but that other side of, you know, messy emotions, the really challenging parts um, of emotion may not have been really openly talked about or um, discussed within the family or shared within that family and that part of it might have been ignored. Yeah. So that's quite common. Another commonality is um, that some people from Asian families, they don't come from that warm and fuzzy mm. background. Mm-hmm. 
So not only did their parents not discuss about the difficult emotions, they didn't they didn't connect in that warm, fuzzy emotion mm-hmm. either. The way in which their parents um, expressed their love was through working really hard for yeah. the family mm-hmm. and making sure that they had food, roof over the head, education opportunities, and that love and warmth was unexpressed in a in I guess a traditional sense in a verbal sense or a physical sense but it's expressed in acts of service yes. in another way yes no I love this it's um love languages isn't it absolutely and so as we're growing up all children and teenagers need verbal expression and physical expression of love mm-hmm. that is fundamentally what we need for healthy emotional development and in Asian cultures that's not necessarily expressed um, so readily and so many um, Asian children and teenagers grow up thinking that their parents maybe don't don't love love them Mm. or they don't sense that warmth from their parents. Maybe they look at, um, I guess a stark difference would be looking at their Caucasian counterparts yes. and their families. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, I'm being very stereotypical here, but they're, they're more readily to show expressions of love. Mm-hmm. We all need that. And so I think a lot of people grow up thinking that my parents didn't love me or they don't like me or there was just a really lack of warmth Mm. and we grow up having these challenging dynamics with our parents Mm. and it takes time to actually see uh, how our parents have shown love and how our parents have shown love maybe may have been very messy it may not have been the way we would have liked it Mm. um but they, for the most part, tried. Yeah, definitely. Another common thread or common theme in Asian households is this idea of filial piety. Loosely, it's this concept where we have a very, in Asian households, we have a very strong sense of respect for our elders. I think it was from a Confucian belief where you really have to respect your elders. You have this kind of sense of duty for mm. your parents in a sense. Mm. It was about honouring your your elders and, mm-hmm. and respecting them and caring for them. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the literature that I've seen in this area and um, a lot of the literature comes out of China about filial piety, there are two parts of filial piety. There, there may be more, but the, mm-hmm. the common um, threads that I've seen, one is this idea of authoritarian Uh, filial piety Mm. and the other is reciprocal filial piety Mm. the authoritarian filial piety is more about obedience Mm. so obeying (laughs) and I highlight the word obey obey your parents without question yes and reciprocal filial piety is about the emotional bond and the love and care that's shown towards your parents. Mm-hmm. And what the literature has shown is that um, authoritarian uh, filial piety is more connected 
to depressive symptoms mm. oh, wow. of young, and these studies are in China, of, of, of Chinese mm-hmm. adolescents. Mm-hmm. So it contributes to an increased risk of depressive symptoms. Goodness. So the part of filial piety of obeying your parents without mm-hmm. question and with a lack of warmth and bonding mm-hmm. actually is detrimental to mental health. Yeah. However, the reciprocal filial piety, which is the expression of love and care, you know, I'm doing this for you because I love you and mm-hmm. I care about you, that was shown to be more of a protective factor oh, against wow. depression symptoms. Yes. Yeah. So the warmth and emotional bond between parents uh, and child is extremely important and a protective factor um, against many mental health uh, illness outcomes in, in all different literature. It's very interesting that there's two different and that they literally, I guess, contradict each other in a way where it's like, well, one actually protects you from depression and the other one is a catalyst for it. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a very also complicated thing to talk about, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. there is a level of understanding of we love our parents. We, you know, we would do anything for our parents. But at the same time, there's a thin kind of line between loving and then also sacrificing our own sense of independence and self mm-hmm. for our parents. Mm-hmm. And I think there has been... Uh, an emphasis on the authoritarian part of it, mm. the, the obedience and honour yeah. part of it, and not so much of the um, reciprocal, which is, you know, I'm, I'm doing this because I love you yeah. and, and care about you. Yeah. That's that's really important. Yes. That's the, the part of filial piety that we want to really highlight and mm-hmm. foster. And it's a really complex conversation because I think, as you said before, if you haven't looked at the literature and, you know, not many people do, like, <laughs> on a in, Sunday night, yeah, have some light reading. Yeah, or with a glass of wine, <laughs> let me look at it. Filial piety. Yeah. Um, we do think that it is just about respecting and obeying our parents no yeah. matter what and not disappointing them. Mm-hmm. And that is a common theme that we see through uh, therapy is this idea of wanting to be independent, wanting to foster your own path, Mm -hmm. Um, but this pull towards obeying or not dishonouring or not disappointing or shaming um, your parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, love and warmth and connection and other ways of showing love Mm -hmm. is not really thought about. Yeah, definitely. I can really resonate with this feeling of guilt and shame. I'm the eldest daughter in a Vietnamese family and I do feel this immense amount of pressure, but it's not something that my parents have kind of put onto me. It's something that I've kind of, Hmm. I'm not sure even how to articulate it. I've Um, noticed it within myself when I reflect where it's Mm. like okay well I feel guilty if I don't go home you know um, Mm. more than once a week if that makes Mm. sense for dinner or I feel guilty if I go out all the time and I'm not spending time with my family Mm. and they they don't they don't they never say Tiana you know what are you doing why are you going out so often they probably encourage that but it's just this sense of like you've got this pull or this sense of like okay I'm the eldest I need to kind of look after 
the household and, mm. and, and do this. And I think it's another part of it is witnessing what your parents did because, mm. like, my mum is the eldest in her family, my dad is the second eldest, and seeing how um, how much they do for their parents mm. and how much they do for their family, in a way, it's like I want to model that behaviour as well, isn't it? And that modelling is so crucial because Mm -hmm. it develops beliefs about ourselves, um, beliefs about how we relate to other people and also the world. I mean, you've obviously uh, absorbed some really great values from your parents, but we also absorb some not great. Yes, yes. (laughs) Not great (laughs) behaviours and beliefs from from our parents too. Definitely. Something that I found fascinating was uh, looking at intergenerational trauma. Mm. And um, I did a bit of research (laughs) prior to to our discussion today because I want, but also it's something that I find quite fascinating, Mm. Um, this this idea or this concept where trauma that has been experienced by whether it be our parents or our grandparents or, or and it can be indirect or direct, but trauma that they've experienced um, in the it could be in the motherland, um, for an example, the Vietnam War mm. or um, the partition of India, um, or we've got so many very traumatic events that have happened. It could be poverty or racism mm. or, or these very traumatic events. It really is something that has a ripple effect um, and pa- it gets passed on generation mm. to generation. And I find it fascinating because... I read that, and we'll probably talk more about this, but um, yes, there is a transmission through mentally um, and our behaviours and how we show up, but there is also a physical transmission as well of Mm. this trauma, which I found really fascinating Mm. about how um, it can alter our DNA and it can also alter, um, you know, stress and things like that can also alter yeah, the DNA that gets passed on and our physical responses, which I found just so interesting. Yeah, we're really just scratching the surface. And and I should say um, my particular interest is in trauma, mm-hmm. trauma in general, yeah. not just in culturally diverse groups. And um, this idea of intergenerational trauma is a really fascinating one mm-hmm. because it brings together different ideas of psychological um, research Mm -hmm. and you mentioned one branch is about the psychological beliefs and behaviours passed on from one generation to another Mm -hmm. and another one which you touched on which is about epigenetics and how our genes um, are being influenced by our environment that we're in Mm. and the environment uh, changes the way in which our genes might be expressed turned off or on I should say that the idea of epigenetics in in intergenerational trauma I mean the research is still ongoing it's Mm -hmm. it's not it's not solid yet Mm -hmm. but there is promising conversations about that and so what your grandparent might have experienced or what your um, mother and father might have experienced it might have changed their genes or Mm -hmm. how their genes were being expressed and how it shaped their nervous system and then that has been passed on to you and another layer to that is it you know it starts 
in utero. You know, it starts mm. the moment that the sperm <laughs> hits the egg and, mm-hmm. you know, cells start to divide. There are, you know, the gene expressions there. But also in utero, um, the mother's experience of the environment that influences on the release of a lot of different hormones and specifically those stress hormones Mm -hmm. that can influence the nervous system of of the the baby. And, you know, that's not to say pregnant women shouldn't experience stress because I think it's stressful to avoid stress. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a role of significant and chronic stress Um, on the mother and infant. And then another layer to that is once, you know, the infant is born, what is happening in that family environment? You know, are they still in trauma, reeling from trauma, trying to recover from trauma? And that might influence how the bonding and attachment occurs between mother and baby or Mm -hmm. father and baby Mm -hmm. um, or whoever the parent is. And then from that, from then on, the co-regulation between the infant or child Mm -hmm. and their parents is so important for brain and nervous system development. Mm -hmm. So co-regulation starts from the moment the baby is born Mm -hmm. or you're born. And very simply, co-regulation is basically a conversation between my nervous system and your nervous system. Okay. So if I put it in, in lay terms, it's yeah. kind of the vibes. Yeah, the vibes. Oh, we're all about the vibes here. It's right here, the good vibes. Yeah. 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 So it's all about the vibes, yeah. right? We're social species and we get a sense of people's vibes or mm-hmm. energy really easily. And this is the idea of co-regulation, what my nervous system is doing mm-hmm. and how it's responding to you. And then it kind of goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. So we are primed from day one to do that with predominantly our our mothers Mm -hmm. uh, because our survival depends on our mother. Mm -hmm. What? I love that there is a physical reason why, like, you might not pass the vibe check or you do pass the vibe (laughs) check. It's our nervous systems. We've got to protect our nervous systems at all costs. Yeah, yeah. If you're craving a sweet treat or refreshing dessert, our longtime friends at Scoopy, Melbourne's favourite bingsu joint, are offering you lovely listeners a delicious 15% off your order when you use the code UA15. You can use this when you buy takeaway or in person at their Melbourne CBD and Gwen Waverley stores. The offer is subject to change, so be sure to tune into our episodes weekly for the fresh deal. Thanks so much, Scoopy. We appreciate y'all. So when we talk about... Uh, intergenerational trauma it is a a lot it can be a lot of different things Mm -hmm. and it can be expressed in many different ways so we very briefly touched on three areas you know one is about the beliefs and behaviors that has been passed on from one generation Mm -hmm. to another Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we talked about very briefly epigenetics and and definitely I'm not a genetic scientist so um (laughs) there's a lot more research to be done in that field a lot more reading and then we've talked about the nervous system and the co-regulation and and how nervous system is influenced by the environment as well Mm -hmm. 
And what I find fascinating is just how it shows up today. How have you seen intergenerational trauma show up in the community today? Mm. So there, there are so many different ways of how it is expressed. I can think of a couple of key examples or common examples. One is around uh, attachment and how emotions are expressed. Again, um, coming from specific Asian cultures where perhaps, uh, you know, back in our grandparents' days or great-grandparents' days, they were going through what World War II, they were mm. going through the Depression. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't room for emotions. Yeah. Our grandparents might have been one of like 10 kids mm. and the sole goal for them was survival, yeah. right? Whether or not you were um, from a village or you were in a big city, World War II, the Depression, even if we go back to World War One, like all of that and all then the individual wars that happened within Asia, there was so much going on where it really impacted the family's mm. survival. Mm-hmm. And so emotional growth and, and development not only may not have been part of the cultural mentality uh, as, um, as it is now, but... There is no room for that when you're trying to feed your family or where you're trying to maintain the roof over Mm -hmm. your head. So what then happens is let's say you're one of 10 children Mm -hmm. and you are one of the eldest children. You are then tasked to um, take care of your siblings or Mm -hmm. maybe you've had to leave school to help your mother, you know, as a female or maybe you've been forced as a male to go down a certain path to provide for mm-hmm. the family mm-hmm. or to honour your family by becoming something that your parents wanted you to become. So you had no room for your own needs mm-hmm. and your own emotional expression. And then so it's not like they grow up without emotions and without mm-hmm. needs. They're just suppressed. Yes. And part of that suppression um, is that internalization of perhaps depression, um, resentment, anger, mm. guilt, shame, all of that is internalized and not dealt mm. with. Mm-hmm. And then it is expressed in um, different ways, perhaps behaviors. Mm-hmm. That person then ends up being parents of their own. Mm-hmm. And then they are passing the same behaviours down to their children. Mm-hmm. The only way they knew how to interact mm-hmm. in that parent-child relationship was to obey. Mm-hmm. And there's no room for emotional needs. Yeah. So when they had children of their own, maybe it is very hard for them to interact emotionally and with warmth. Mm-hmm. And their idea of the parent-child relationship is... I am the head of the household or I'm a parent, Mm -hmm. you obey, you listen to me because I know what's best. And then there is no room for that child's emotional needs and growth. On top of that, and this is, you know, quite a difficult subject for um, a lot of families, particularly Asian families, 
but physical punishment yeah. and shaming mm-hmm. um, was used and and I don't know if it's used as prominently now, but mm-hmm. it was a key discipline yeah. um, growing up for a lot of Asian families. And we can laugh about it, yeah. about, about your mom chasing you around <laughs> a slipper or yeah. whatever, but for a child that's, you know, to be faced with someone that they're meant to trust and love mm. And they fear as well that this person that they trust and love can cause them harm. Mm -hmm. That is trauma within themselves. Mm -hmm. But if that child or person grows up in an environment or even a time, right, an era where there's no dissemination of information and education and self-reflection wasn't um, promoted, then it's very easy for them as they bring their children up. It's like, well, I turned out okay Mm -hmm. and I was corporately punished and shame was, you know, a useful tool and all my friends, you know, experienced the same thing. It's okay for me to then treat my children that way. Mm -hmm. And particularly when parents are stressed, they're, they're tired, they're, you know, doing the best they can, they easily default mm. to what they know. Yeah. And if what they've known from their parents and ha- household is physical punishment, mm. shaming, maybe the cold shoulder, not yeah. being spoken to. We, the yeah. silent treatment, okay. <laughs> the silent treatment, yeah. which again is like a, an attachment trauma. It's mm. basically saying to you that if I don't deem you as – uh, acting or performing or being the way I like, mm-hmm. then you are nothing to me. Yeah. Then I completely abandon you, mm-hmm. emotionally abandon you. Yeah. I just, I think it, what I've really learned from this conversation is it's so yes. cyclical because, yeah, it's something that's been transmitted and passed on. And now I guess we have the opportunity to kind of break that cycle. Um, do, do you have, I guess, any any tips or advice for those that want to kind of break that cycle or even just kind of change the way the narrative has been written for so long? And that's what I hear often Mm. are people saying to me, I I don't want to pass this on Mm -hmm. to the next generation. And and they might be people in their 20s and not thinking about babies anytime soon, (laughs) but they want to start early. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, it is a very complex conversation and there are individual uh, individual differences. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways, one of the early ways is to understand your family story. Mm-hmm. So what I love about your podcast and a, a lot of your guests is how they've told their, their story, mm-hmm. understanding how their family, their heritage, their experiences have shaped who they are and their and their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And understanding your family story. So where were your great grandparents? Mm-hmm. You know, if we just start there. Maybe it's starting with your grandparents. Mm-hmm. You know, what was what were their lives like? You know, where did they come from? What did they go through? How did they treat their their children? And Look, you won't get an accurate picture because it's all filtered mm-hmm. um, down from perspectives, but getting an understanding of what that might have been like, then what your parents' lives were like mm-hmm. growing up, mm-hmm. what did they have to deal with, what 
what emotional support did they receive? Was there any emotional warmth? Were there any expectations that they need to fulfill? And then how did that affect them as individuals? Mm. You know, what struggles and sacrifices they needed to go through? And how did that shape them positively and not so positively? Mm -hmm. And then how did that shape their parenting and what they've instilled within you? Mm. And then now starting to cultivate your story. So it's kind of like a a chapter of a book. It builds upon Mm -hmm. itself. And then as an adult, you then see how your family story has shaped you and your beliefs Um, And then now you can also identify the experiences, the key experiences that you have, both Mm -hmm. positive and negatively, and how it's shaped you as an individual. Mm -hmm. So that storytelling is really... It's powerful, isn't it? It's really powerful to to understanding who we are, but also to understand um, our parents a little better. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, even through understanding, understanding doesn't, necessarily mean um let's forget about it yeah no let's forget about all the maybe not so good things that happened in the relationship Mm. but understanding is it brings out compassion and if it's not compassion for your parents maybe you're not ready for that yet or maybe you know and there are some parents out there who um, didn't try their best, you know, mm-hmm. and who might have actually caused harm. Yeah. And we need to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. But understanding your story means that you can develop compassion for yourself. Yeah. Oh, I do really, I love that you say compassion for yourself because I think a lot of the time we're very hard on ourselves. We're our own worst critic. So having the ability to kind of sit with your emotions, validating them and giving yourself as much love as you want to give to others is just so, so valuable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I I feel like this is my own therapy session right now and you're all listening in. (laughs) Thank you so much for giving me such an in-depth understanding of, of intergenerational trauma because I think that is something that a lot of our listeners um, at home have probably um, experienced in their life and it's something that we 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 talk about I think casually right like we say oh my goodness like I've experienced so much trauma like or we say oh yeah we make these off comments that are very casual but we don't really usually sit down and reflect and talk about the tangible aspects of uh, mental health and things that we've experienced so thank you so much I really appreciate that now, if we look at present day, a lot of us grapple with this, and, and this is something that we've mentioned on the podcast before, but we grapple with this push and pull between different cultures, whether you have grown up with, for an example, for myself, I've grown up with two Vietnamese parents. I live in Australia, so I'm grappling between a lot of the time the more traditional Eastern values of, of the motherland and also the Western values that we, we've been taught. This has shown up in the workplace. For an example, in one culture, we're taught that being assertive and being confident and being the loudest one in the room will be rewarded it will get you places you'll become a leader versus in another culture we're taught that you know obedience and um, listening to authority and 
just working really hard will be rewarded. Mm. And they're both, you know, they both have their own merits, of course. They both can be healthy behaviours, but there is this, I guess, this dissonance because you're kind of caught between two worlds. And in effect, there is this whole idea of the bamboo ceiling, Mm. um, which is this construct or this idea that's similar to the the glass ceiling, um, but this is more from a cultural perspective where the behaviours that we've learnt as children has an impact on how we behave in the workplace and then that can also hinder or support different opportunities for leadership positions. I mean, I know you mentioned that um, you have an interest in this field in particular. How do you think we can, I guess, start to unlearn certain behaviours to help us break through that bamboo ceiling? I've spoken to a lot of my colleagues. Uh, I work in, in the corporate environment where we look at the leaders in our company and they are a lot of the time not people of colour. I think that is a great question. And as you mentioned, I do have an interest in organisational and executive coaching, particularly of people of colour mm. um, and helping leaders, but also helping people of colour get into leadership mm. positions. Mm. Yes, I'm interested in a lot of things. <laughs> Love it. We all have to have heaps of interest. Um, but this is also a complex question because I want us to be really careful here as to not just think that it is something that we have to do and change mm-hmm. because it is a systemic issue yes, as well. definitely. The bamboo ceiling isn't going to go away um, just because Asians are going to speak yes. louder. Yes. Thank you for highlighting that because... Yes, I did miss that part of the bamboo ceiling. It is systemic. This, it's, it's interesting because it reminds me of a conversation I had with another colleague and he was we were talking about promotions and he was saying, oh, you kind of have to play the white game. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And he goes, oh, well, you kind of have to. And he was talking about, I guess, what, what we mentioned before about the behaviours and how you have to change your mm-hmm. behaviours or code switch in a way. But then we kind of delved a bit deeper and we're like, okay, well, it's not just, as you said, it's not just an, an our issue or a me problem. Mm. It's also the responsibility of the organisation, right? If we want to have more people of colour progress, it's also because the way things are set up a lot of the time, we are at a disadvantage. Mm. Yeah. There are a lot of overt and covert discrimination mm. and, and biases. Mm-hmm. And we are, I think, a, a long way from having quality mm. in terms of diversity, whether or not um, that is in terms of ethnicity or disability and ability mm-hmm. um, or people going through other illnesses. We're, we're kind of a long way from that. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that your colleague said that you just need to play the white game. Mm. And in one hand, that is true, quote-unquote true. Mm-hmm. In another hand, that, that sentiment is actually very sad yeah, at the same definitely. time that um, people uh, feel, if they're, if they're not Caucasian, that they have to act like they are. Yeah. And it, it is a really sad, you know, outcome of assimilation and, definitely. and trying to survive in this uh, corporate workplace. Mm-hmm. Um. I think one thing that you could do is to identify what your individual values are, Mm -hmm. values in terms of your 
beliefs about how you should work and behave and interact in the world and also um, values in terms of your goals. Mm. And your own individual values will end up looking like uh, an integration of both your Eastern or Asian values and also your more westernised values. Mm-hmm. Neither are good nor bad, but what you will do just automatically as an individual is filter the ones that are most useful to you. Mm-hmm. So maybe you do need to learn to be more assertive and outspoken. Maybe you are in an industry where that is really key to be able to speak up in that meeting and not let someone take over your idea Mm -hmm. and so if you do identify that that is a value that you need and need to cultivate then there is no shame to actually cultivate that and Mm -hmm. learn about that Mm -hmm. but to actually get to know yourself Mm -hmm. and identify you know what works for you Mm -hmm. I think is the most important Diversity initiatives in workplaces really come from diverse leadership. We do see an increase in um, diversity initiatives or mental health initiatives. But if the leadership is not representative Mm. of diversity or is not open about mental health, how true and reflective can those initiatives be? Is it just a mouthpiece to tick the box yes, to know. say, yes, I, I feel this yeah. diversity quota? Mm-hmm. So businesses, corporations, organisations have a lot to answer for in terms of helping people of colour get into leadership mm-hmm. positions because that is when um, we see true diversity initiatives. Yeah. It's this whole idea of that um, unconscious bias as well. This whole bias occurs a lot when it comes to hiring. Like I think there was a study that showed that those with more ethnic Mm -hmm. names um, were more likely to be passed versus um, the more, you know, John Smiths of the world were more likely to be hired. If the only people at the top that are making these decisions, these gatekeepers are all white and not people of colour, they inherently have an unconscious bias. So they will always be platforming people that are similar to them and look like them and what they know. So I, I definitely agree with you that there is a lot of work to be done in this in this area, in this space, and hopefully with us working on ourselves, we can kind of start shifting the needle a bit. But definitely there is a lot of work um, to be done to break through that bamboo ceiling and, and kind of, yeah, get those promotions, everyone, and go for it. <laughs> Absolutely. And we need, like, a whole community to help us. Yes. Right? This is – and this is where uh, a community is mm. so lovely, being able to talk to people in the same positions or finding a mentor, a person of colour who is um, perhaps in the position that you want to be in mm. or who's excelling in an area – and speaking to them about their journey yeah. and how they've made it, I think, can really help you refine um, what you need or maybe yeah. what you don't need to do. It's that whole lot of role modelling, isn't it? Yeah. I have a mentor at, at my company and, and she's a person of colour and I found that I could connect with her a lot more than, say, someone who wasn't because 
she just gets it. She just understands the same struggles that I face being a person of colour in this corporate environment that someone who isn't a person of colour might not understand. And it's not to say that they don't have the range or the the capacity to understand, but it's just that sometimes speaking to someone where you don't have to over-explain mm. your, your situation or, mm. or what you face or what you deal with, it's just that ease, isn't it? And you know what? It's exhausting. It is. To have to do that. The idea of breaking through a bamboo ceiling by yourself sounds mm. really exhausting. Yes. We, we almost have to be, as a community, <laughs> push, push through. The, yeah. the if, you, if you envision it, um, I don't know if anyone has actually seen bamboo or felt it, but it's tough. It's tough to, it's, it's a hard, it's hard to break through. So the more people we have punching, breaking through, the better it is. But anyway, speaking of community, our awesome Unapologetically Asian community, some of them have actually written in with some questions for you. Okay, so Emerson Trung, shout out Emerson. He said, is there such a thing for mindful venting to our friends if we all lead such busy lives? I think it's interesting to use the term mindful venting because when we do live really busy lives, we can feel really disconnected Mm. from other people and we don't want to, and this is also large thing that Asian people experience. We don't want to burden others. Yes. Yes. So I think Emerson is speaking to Michael Venting, being able to share what's going on in your life without burdening others Mm. or taking up too much of their capacity. And, and yes, that there is a place for mindful venting, but also having an open conversation about your capacity, like within your friendship group, Mm. you know, what's your capacity can I talk to you about Mm. something that's happened and then for that person because again self-sacrificing is another (laughs) big Asian thing a lot Um, of common things yeah (laughs) a lot of common things you know we tend to say yes right we tend to say yes you know let's have this hour conversation about you know what's going on for you people pleasing people pleasing (laughs) is another one so we actually need to learn to one ask you know is it okay can we have this conversation and two we need to identify whether or not we're at capacity and say actually you know can we have a conversation about that another time Mm. what might be helpful with um mindful I love the term mindful venting (laughs) (laughs) what might be helpful with mindful venting is to do that in conjunction with another activity Mm -hmm. So you might go for a walk or, you know, go out an outing or, you know, go out to lunch. And so you're getting some social connection, you're, mm. you're doing something really pleasant and you're talking about difficult issues yeah. as well. So we've got a question also from Tom Shu, um, and he asks, comparison is the thief of joy. How do we try to live life on our own terms? I think this is a big one. <laughs> so first of all, it's uh, unrealistic to expect us not to compare to other people mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. You know, comparison is actually important and it's part of our evolutionary being to compare to um, our fellow peers. Mm-hmm. Some tips would be, and you would have heard this, this is a very common one but very effective one, look through your social media mm-hmm. and mute anyone who you find yourself comparing to. Mm-hmm. If you're not having warm and fuzzies when you're looking at 
their Instagram account Mm -hmm. and you're thinking, oh, I wish I had that or Mm -hmm. why isn't my life like this or they look so happy, Mm -hmm. mute, unfollow. Yeah. Really curate what you're consuming. Mm -hmm. The second is to practice gratitude. Mm -hmm. So spend some time every day to express gratitude for what you have in your life and what you're working towards. These are very good practical tips. I love it. Thank you. But Phoebe, it has been it has been a pleasure speaking to you. I've I've learned so much and I'm sure um, all of our listeners have learned so much as well. Your demeanor and your warmth it just exudes through the microphone and and I'm I'm so grateful that you've spent your Saturday morning with me. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Um and usually we give um a bit of a moment for our guests to kind of plug in anything that they've been working on or um, where can listeners basically find you? Yeah, so they can find us through Instagram where the underscore inner underscore collective and also our website innercollective.com.au. We're having really exciting things happen this year. So we're developing um, events that really target culturally diverse groups and their understanding of mental health and healing from mental health. We've also got some wonderful online courses um, that target really common themes that we see in therapy. Um, One that's been really popular is perfectionism, which, Mm. again, is a thing. (laughs) Another Asian. Another Asian thing. Um, But also effective communication is on there, so learning to be more assertive in your communication. So we have lots of exciting things. And for the UA listeners, we do have a discount code for the online courses. So if you head to the innercollective.com.au, you'll see the online courses tab. And at checkout, you can type in UA, UA without capitalization, so little letters UA30. Get 30 wow. Those courses. We're also taking new clients at the moment. So we've opened up our books, which is great. You can find out more about our team at innercollective.com.au and submit an inquiry there amazing thank you so much oh my goodness come on guys start your mental health journey today start your personal development journey today especially with the inner collective um i'm i'm excited i think i'm gonna actually do that as well and one question i guess just to wrap us up is what makes you unapologetically asian that is such a great question (laughs) so the more profound <laughs> answer. Can, can be both. Don't, don't you worry. No judgment here. So both. Okay. So more, the more profound answer is that I have really spent time um, in, in my own space to own my family story mm. and therefore getting understanding of myself and my experiences, particularly uh, from my Chinese background. Mm-hmm. So that's a <laughs> more profound answer. Yeah. The less profound answer is that I totally love and accept my mono lids. Yes. I don't have the double eyelids. Yes. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who want the double eyelid surgery. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm, I'm cool with my mono lids. Okay, so now we're moving on to recommendations. So this is the segment where we talk all about our favourite books, movies, TV shows or anything that we've been loving. 
Phoebe, we'll hand over to you first. What are you recommending for the listeners? Okay, so one um, more psychologically orientated book, I guess, uh, it's The Body That Keeps Score, and mm. I'm sure lots of listeners would be uh, well aware of that book by Bessel van der Kolk. Mm-hmm. And that's a great book to start understanding trauma and specifically how trauma impacts on uh, your physical being mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Another recommendation that I have that is not clinical because I <laughs> I love reading particularly fiction books. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last one I read, and I'm not sure if you've read it, it's called The Fortunes of Jaded Women. Oh, no, I haven't heard of it by Carolyn Wynn Mm -hmm. and it is about the it's about a Vietnamese family Mm -hmm. and it's about the intergenerational experiences of a Vietnamese family particularly the women in the family wow okay and it's such a great book Mm -hmm. yeah I'm definitely adding that to the cart yeah it's a beautiful book great mix of humor as well as touching on some really deeper things Amazing. Thank you. Um, for myself, what I'm recommending is actually an app. It's called Tangerine. Um, and so the app is all about um, fostering habits. So something that I felt, I don't know if um, anyone else can relate to this, but over summer, I just felt like I had no routine and I don't like feeling like this. I want to kind of feel productive again and, and feel that dopamine hit that you get when you cross something off. And then also when it came to setting goals, because I'm someone that likes to to set goals um, for the year. And so this app allows you to um, log in different habits that you want to foster. Um, It could be physical related and you could hook it up to your Apple Watch. So it could automatically um, be censored through the app. Or it could be something like drink two litres of water a day or um, it could be do something good for myself. Um, And once you've completed it, you just swipe and it will tell you that you've completed it. So um, it's a nice way to keep track of how I'm going with my habits. It also incorporates gratitude in there as well. So it has a bit of a reflection area where you can pick an emoji to represent what your day was like. And you can kind of look back and think, okay, my day was good. And it might actually correlate to the fact that I've ticked a lot of my good habits. So yeah, I've been using that and it's been it's been good I quite like it that's awesome I, yeah. I also love the name tangerine yeah I, I actually not sure why it's called tangerine but um yeah we love we love ourselves a good citrus <laughs> fruit <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of unapologetically asian um I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast be sure to check out Phoebe and the inner collective and go get your 30 percent off and if you like what you're listening to Please don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. Um, If you could leave us a rating or review, that would also really help us out. Thank you so much. Um, Sending love and goodbyes. Bye.